If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, you can download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Wiser Wednesday Experience Speaks, a podcast that discusses the improvement of physician engagement and physician documentation habits by focusing on the core aspects of clinical documentation integrity. Here is the creator and founder of Core CDI, the co-founder of Top Gun Audit School, and your host of this podcast, Glenn Krause. Hello everyone, Glenn Krause from Core CDI and Top Gun Audit School. I'm lucky and privileged to have Eric Rubenstein from Advised Health. Welcome to the show. Uh, Eric, a little bit about yourself before we get started. Sure, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my oh, name welcome. is Eric Rubenstein, and I am uh, the Director of Litigation, Fraud, Waste, and Abuse Support for Advised Health. Uh, and that means that I essentially oversee all of the uh, SIU, Special Investigative Unit related services that Advice Health provides. My background is uh, I was a special agent with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General for just about all of my career uh, working for the federal government, uh, which, which means that I spent my entire career doing fraud, waste, abuse, and compliance related criminal, civil, and administrative investigations. I started out working in New York City uh, and then transferred to an office that we had uh, in northern New Jersey where I finished out my career. I spent a lot of time with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Office of Counsel to the Inspector General, uh, doing criminal cases, civil cases, and administrative cases. And I bring that into my second career at Advise, um, helping it provide fraud, waste, abuse, and compliance-related consulting and advisory work. Well, great. Welcome to the show again. And you know I'm big on CDI. You probably see a lot of my uh, posts on LinkedIn and my previous uh, uh, articles and thoughts. And I just started a podcast called Wiser Wednesday Experience Speaks. I'm glad we're talking today because, you know, I'm doing a lot of chart reviews, looking at a lot of denials where CDI has actually touched the chart or queried. And uh, I'm just validating uh, medical necessity, and I'm really, really concerned about the potential compliance exposure that goes with querying physicians, particularly when the patient story 
doesn't quite support the diagnosis that we're querying for, but the clinical indicators do. And do you see that as potential compliance uh, exposure when we're asking for a, a diagnosis, a seeking clarification, but the, really the clinical picture, not the clinical indicators now, like white count and temperature and all that, the clinical picture does not support it. Is that, uh, from an OIG perspective, is that, a, is that a potential compliance risk? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I think that the issue today is that providers are, uh, are documenting to their treatment in some regards, but they're really not documenting to the code. And you see that quite often with providers uh, in the evaluation and management world and even in the ICD-9 or ICD-10 world in, in hospitals with DRG, is that providers are providing a level of treatment uh, but when they submit those claims, the claims are not uh, really matching up to what the documentation uh, is supportive of. And so you've got an instance where, you know, if you're talking about an E&M code evaluation and management, a doctor is submitting a claim uh, for a 99213, a 99214, a 99215, which, you know, the level four and level five should be used sparingly, um, but their documentation just isn't supporting that level of care, but in their mind, they're treating to that level by spending that time. When you're talking about uh, issues in the CDI world and DRGs and, you know, that vernacular is coming out even more and more, particularly uh, with COVID. Every day, all you do is hear about COVID. It's on oh, that's every right. I'm getting social kind of tired, media. Aren't you? Yeah. It, so it is, it is a little tiresome because it's, it's every day, all day, that's all anybody ever talks about, whether you're talking about uh, the wearing of a mask or you're talking about social distancing. But if you're working in our space in the healthcare billing, coding, compliance, and analysis area, it's, you know, really, it's, it's almost the Wild West. When, you know, the CMS administrator uh, recently indicated that, uh, you know, the, the barn door essentially was open with things like telemed and telehealth, and so That's now right. there's a whole there's a whole area of uh, where CMS did not typically pay for an inordinate amount of telehealth and telemedicine. It was really relegated no, to those are the originating sites and MSAs and all of this very very technical jargon uh, to essentially allowing right. uh, you know anything to be telemed. I've even seen some of the commercial payers out there are paying for virtual dental visits. And so what? at what point do we say, sure, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a Blue Cross and Blue Shield down in the southeast that is currently paying for virtual dental visits. Um, you know, CMS has relaxed its rules on, on nearly all types of telemed and telemedicine to include ancillary services like PT, OT, and speech-language therapy and all of that. So the issue is going to always be that fraud will always be fraud, and documentation will always be a requirement to support the medical necessity and the service rendered. Uh, I applaud all payers and I applaud CMS for the expansion of telemed and telehealth related uh, services that are out there. Right. But it does not by any stretch change the fact that uh, fraud is still fraud and, and documentation still needs to be supportive of that. The OIG will always go back on a medical necessity related matter and there will always be audits, the UPICs, the MACs, CMS will always be directing audits uh, in which the documentation must support the medical necessity of that service. Yeah, you know, one thing, I agree. And one thing, Eric, that I'm concerned about is uh, 
is, you know, I look at these OIG uh, hospital compliance reviews I'm on their list of, and I read them faithfully to see what the, and the common, you know, a common risk area that they identify right in the reports is uh, high-weighted DRGs, DRG, like sepsis with, uh, with major CC, complex pneumonia with major CC, simple pneumonia with major CC, okay? And then uh, they look at DRGs where there's only one major CC or CC and, of course, uh, payers, commercial payers and the racks and the zip, ZPIC contractors and, the, and uh, you know, the commercial insurers using cost containment companies. This is like fodder to them. And uh, to, certainly to me, this is a compliance risk. Just trying to get one CC or MCC, I mean, you know, when you focus on reimbursement, you kind of miss the, miss the global picture of, you know, of the, do, of the documentation as a communication tool. Am I thinking straight? Am, am I on the right track, Eric? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Glenn. And I think that, you know, one of the areas of focus really has to be that before that claim goes out the door for payment, mm -hmm. regardless of who that payer is, yeah. that somebody uh, with the appropriate level of knowledge, expertise, and training has to be in a position to do that review. You know, the problem if you're talking about on the provider side, non-facility, you know, your mom-and-pop doctor where, yes. you know, they're treating the patient, they're documenting what they're doing, they're circling the CPT or the HICS-PICS code. That's on, right. You know, what they typically call the super bill. It goes to a biller who is nothing more than a, a data, you know, input type person. That's right. Um, and that claim goes out the door. And, and I'll tell you, Advise recently, we, we had, a, we had a, a project that we did with a law firm on a potential OIG self-disclosure for a large ophthalmology group. And, you know, in talking to the doctor, they had some very major issues with respect to some audits that had been done by one of the MACs and the UPICs. They had a very high error rate on some probe sampling. And the doctor just kept saying to me, we, you know, we document what we are doing, and then, uh, you know, it goes out and it gets billed. And I said, well, your, your doctors are coding incorrectly, and that's the problem. And the doctor said, well, our doctors aren't coding. Uh, and so I held up a super bill, and the super bill had a bunch of CPT and HICS-PICS codes circled on it. And I said to the doctor, well, who circles these? Do you have a coder? Do you have a CDI person? Do you have somebody with professional training in coding and billing? And the doctor said, no, our doctors circle it. I said, well, your doctors are coding. And that's and the think problem. That's they don't where... think they're coding. They are coding. They're yeah. circling at an E&M level. Sure, and, and I think that's the problem where a lot of the healthcare professionals uh, are missing that, you know, that piece of the puzzle is that this doctor was 100% convinced that his staff were not coding. And I said, well, as long as you're circling an ICD-10, and more importantly, when you're circling that HICS-PICS or that CPT code, your doctor staff are coding and you have these audits that are going on, and you're failing these audits, and you're doing very poor in these audits, mostly because your doctors are coding incorrectly. And really all he had was a couple of people in his office that were essentially doing nothing more than the data entry piece. So now you take that same methodology and you bring it into the inpatient, the facility setting, and it's, in some regards it's no different. Your larger metropolitan hospital conglomerates uh, have full-time dedicated staffs that do a lot of this. So they have the coders, they have the CDI, they have the 
you know, the RN clinical staff that do this, uh, but it's your smaller and your medium-sized solo or small group hospitals that I think are really at risk because they don't have the knowledge or the wherewithal internally to do this. And so you're right. You see this with sepsis constantly, um, doctors diagnosing incorrectly sepsis, that's Without right, and particularly in the in the inpatient in the inpatient setting. Think, do you think, Eric, that they've been kind of conditioned to uh, write these diagnoses because they're tired of getting queries? So you know, I think the interesting piece about that is that when a when a doctor diagnoses sepsis mm-hmm. um, in an inpatient, I think that there's more likely than not what the doctor is relying upon is their clinical experience in understanding sepsis. Um, and so there's a heavy reliance upon their, their years of experience in dealing with sepsis. And so they may say that from my experience, this patient has certain uh, indicators that my experience tells me are such that they have sepsis, but there are no empirical data points to suggest that they have or the, sepsis. Or the patients, you know, I think, Eric, you bring an interesting point because from a compliance perspective, because I think uh, my experience has been, particularly recently, physicians want to reduce administrative burden or the hassles of queries, so they, they predict they might get a query, so they write the diagnosis. I had a perfect example the other day. Uh, tell me what you think of this as an OIG investigator. They're not necessarily clinical, but there's enough in this statement to say outside the reviewer would question it. The doctor wrote in the physical exam constitutional, a part of the physical exam, which is a description of the patient. How do they look? The doctor wrote, patient just finished piling off a double cheeseburger with a large plate of french fries, resting comfortably uh, at the edge of the bed talking to the nurse. Okay? So that's what the doctor saw when he went into the room. He wrote down severe sepsis, number one. Number two, acute centralopathy, secondary to number, uh, to number one sepsis. Okay, and so the CDI person, they look at the chart and say, oh, we got the magic words in the chart. Let me uh, check it off that this, this chart is optimized. Uh, you know, that chart is going to be reviewed by the OIG's contractors that conduct reviews. It's going to stick out like a sore thumb. To me, that's a compliance risk. Your thoughts, Eric? Am I am I thinking wrong? No, I think you're I think you're uh, you're in the right ballpark. I mean, I think the problem is is that right when you've got somebody who is just strictly a mechanical coder, uh, data entry person, they're being told, okay, when you read through the chart, if the word sepsis appears, that's what you're putting in, and that's what we're looking to get to get paid for. And, you know, and, and I think that's really where the problem is. And the other piece is, is that uh, because we, uh, you know, coders, coders are trained, because uh, I'm a coder by trade, and most coders have some clinical knowledge. Really, uh, Eric, the, the challenge is, is that there's a coding rule going back to, I think, 2016 in the coding clinic that says the doctor's words count for something, uh, and we're not supposed to question them. On the other hand, that's not carte blanche that we look the other way. And the second, the second thing is, is that as a CDI person, uh, because we have cap, and this I think is a real compliance risk. I want to get your thoughts, then we can uh, get your closing remarks. But you know, really, one thing that's bothersome is that when you measure outcomes of CDI programs based on uh, performance metrics of task-based activities that don't generally 
uh, they're not intended to really measure actual true documentation improvement for the record and the patient story, that to me is a compliance risk because if your measurement of performance is task-based, number of charts reviewed, number of queries left, number of queries responded, CC, MCC, it's the old adage, tell me how I'll be measured and I'll perform accordingly. So if I'm measured based on tasks, I'm not giving a lot of credence or uh, expectation or responsibility to CDI to actually get to secure documentation of a patient's story. And that's really the downfall of CDI. It wasn't intended, nor is it designed to improve documentation. To me, that's a compliance risk because we're fighting for the money. We're going for the gusto, but we're not supporting the foundations of a record documentation. Your thoughts? Am I, am I, am I thinking right? Yeah, you're definitely thinking right, Glenn. The, the, the issue is going to be what's the return on investment? So, you know, I'll give you as, a, as an example I've, I've used before. Advise recently did an, uh, an audit on behalf of a payer that we have a contract with to do some deeper dive reviews with respect to sepsis because that's the one that's, that's out there. And uh, the, review that we, the review that we did resulted in um, an identification of a 75% error rate on 75% error rate? Really? Right, meaning 75% of the records that we reviewed. Now, these were not a statistical sample, so I don't want to say that it's statistically valid. This was a probe sample. Yep. But in the probe sample of records, we, we did a review of 50 patient records. 47 of them uh, were miscoded to say that it was sepsis when it was not sepsis. Uh, so just to go back to the example that you gave a few minutes ago about the patient uh, where the documenting in the chart was that the patient had had a cheeseburger and fries and all of yeah, that. People that have sepsis are, you know, I'm not a, a healthcare, uh, you know, provider, but, you know, I've read up enough to understand that when people have sepsis, from a non-clinical perspective, those are really sick people. Absolutely. And if someone is... If, if someone is suffering from sepsis, you know, they've got organ failure, they've got, you know, they've got a systemic infection, their body is going into shock, there's organ failure. That's uh, the right. Last thing, the last thing that I would anticipate that a person would want to do is have a cheeseburger and, and french fries. And, and so, resting comfortably you know, on uh, lying at the, sitting on the edge of the bed talking the the to bed, the nurse. Right. Hello. Right. So that's it's, it's, you know that's that's obviously that's obviously concern. When, when we had our findings on this uh, one review that we did and found a 75% error rate, we said you know this is this is really just terrible because part of the issue was that we had doctors that were hospitalists that were indicating that the patient had sepsis in the record, but there yeah. were really no other clinical there were no independent clinical findings by our um, by our clinical staff to support that. In other instances. It, the, the, the the diagnosis of sepsis wasn't even noted in the patient chart. There were some instances where the patient's diagnosis were things like UTI, uh, pneumonia, you know, other sort that, of that's, uh, conditions that's, that's uh, that weren't that's con that's that weren't sepsis, and yet the facility still documented that as sepsis. So in some instances, you have a doctor indicating it was sepsis when there was no other clinical. Uh, indicator that it was sepsis, and so that that to me is, uh, you know, maybe not so much a fraud uh, issue, but in other instances when the when the record isn't even indicating sepsis by any of the uh, clinical staff, 
and then the facility is submitting a claim for sepsis, to me, that is starting to get into the fraud area because now you've got an instance where the facility is clearly misrepresenting what the diagnosis is. There's no documentation in the chart, um, uh, you know, to support that that was actually the condition. So, you know, the, the, ultimately what it comes down to is the return on investment. Facilities and providers that aren't willing to do things like, you know, if you're on the provider side, the mom and pop or the group practice, the non-facility side of, of healthcare, if you're not looking to encompass into your uh, compliance plan yearly or biannually uh, third-party auditors to come in, we do a ton of these things. I know you do a ton of these things where you go into a provider's group and you say, okay, twice a year we're going to do a statistical sample of records we're going to look at 100 charts. We use RATSTAT, which is the OIG uh, gold standard for uh, pulling records. We're going to pull 100 records. We're going to look at 100 dates of service, and we're going to come up with what your error rate is. We're going to try to uh, educate your providers on proper documentation, and then we're going to do a follow-up audit six months later to see if that training and education actually worked. Same thing in the hospital setting. If, if providers and facilities aren't really in a position where they'd rather spend that little bit of money in the front end to, to do these things, uh, the back end is worse because if there is an investigation that results in an overpayment, uh, that overpayment could be turned over to the OIG for a further investigation. Uh, if the matter goes to the U.S. Attorney's Office for a civil prosecution or to the Office of Counsel, to the Inspector General uh, for a civil monetary penalties law action, you're talking about typically double damages plus uh, multipliers uh, and fines that range from $5,500 to $11,000 per claim. So those numbers really do climb very quickly. What I was going to say is, you know, what I was going to say is, you know, and then in instances where providers uh, identify that there's been an overpayment, uh, they can make a self-disclosure, and self-disclosures have um, a, a lot of positives to them. Uh, and do not really, uh, you know, involve the lengthy prosecution and investigation that goes on. So there's a lot of pluses to having a robust compliance plan, which includes the use of third-party auditors, um, bringing in people like yourself with CDI backgrounds, clinical backgrounds. Your return on investment winds up being better because you're not playing your own game of pay and chase and chase you wind up getting paid for what you did appropriately the first That's time. That's right. And if, there's, and if there's ever an audit, if there's ever an audit, you're in a position where you can argue, articulate, and fight any overpayments that may be out there because you've got the backdrop of having a robust compliance plan in place to oversee billing and coding. Yeah, excellent, excellent discussion. There are a couple of key points, then we'll wrap it up. Just last, I think it was last month, there was a hospital uh, in Kentucky, I won't mention the name, they self-disclosed that they uh, inappropriately billed three, uh, three DRG types, sepsis, complex pneumonia, stroke. And by the way, what amazes me is this, it, it went back to, uh, I think, 2000. 2012, 2013, all the way through 2019. Now, this hospital has a CDI program. How could they possibly have over uh, inappropriately coded 
these high-risk DRGs for such a long time. Maybe they didn't have a compliance program. Maybe they missed it. Maybe the maybe they had a consultant come in uh, and be overly aggressive and teach him how to document uh, physicians how to document diagnosis or optimization. We don't know. But the question is, I read it and I said to myself, uh, unbelievable. We don't know the details, but. They have a right. CDI program. I know they do. How could right. they possibly have gone so long and not caught that they were over uh, inappropriately billing? Maybe it was because they had, you know, one risk. I want to just close with a couple of statements uh, and get your final view here. Uh, one of the biggest compliance concerns I have with CDI programs is what I call D DGR, not DRG, DGR drop, grab, and run. Drop a query. They see the clinical indicators, but the clinical picture is not necessarily well documented by the physician and the H&P, just like that one with the piling off a cheeseburger. And so the doctor writes sepsis. Uh, oh, they don't. They put sepsis or severe UTI. So we query the physician for sepsis. He checks off the box. That's, that's where it ends. We drop, drop a query. We come back the next day grab the diagnosis from the query, and then we, uh, then we run to our software to say we got a victory. We review the chart. Okay, we got credit for reviewing the chart, KPI. Then we answer a query. We get another point for answer, got, getting the, saying the doctor answered the query. You get another point for saying they agree with the query, and we got another point because uh, we optimized the chart because now we have a more specific, higher-weighted DRG. Where's the compliance in that when there's no other place in the chart? I call that a mirage. Now you see it, now you don't. Like in a desert. Hey, I think I see water. Oh, no, that's not water once we get there. And that's what happens when they start getting reviewed by outside reviewers. They don't see, they don't have a clinical picture. To me, that is a compliance unnecessary compliance exposure. I know another hospital in southern Arizona they, I could tell by the DRG frequency report exactly when the CDI program started, right to the month. And you know what? About six, uh, about ten months after they started, and I looked at their data six months. I said to the CFO, uh, "Something don't smell right when you have sepsis with your number one diagnosis DRG with major CC eight months in a row." That's just not, I've never seen that. Uh, did you know the doctor, the CFO laughed and said, what do you laugh? He said, that's not concerning. We're getting optimal revenue. But you won't get to keep it. You know, Eric, the OIG showed up about four months later. So they have the, they have the capability for data mining and data analytics. Am I correct? Sure. Sure. So, and, that, and that becomes part of the problem is that providers are going through their process of billing and coding and submitting That's right. their claims. But what they're not doing is they're not taking a look internally at where their maybe what their their DRG or their CPT or HixPix uh, code creep comes from, right? So That's right. if you know they're not looking at their quarterly or year over year and saying, hey, last year we didn't bill this CPT very much, or this Hicks picks, or this DRG, this year we're up oh, this 50% DRG, to 60%. They're not really looking at that. Now, you know, if, if you are looking at that and you're seeing that tectonic shift, is that tectonic shift because there's been a new 
Uh, is there a new code out there that you're now doing? Is there a new modality? Is there a new, new whatever doctors. it is? Whatever it is, right. Do you have a, have you, you know, if you're an ophthalmology practice and you were specializing in, gen, you know, you didn't have a specialty, you were a general ophthalmology and you decided you wanted to expand your business model. And so you're a, you're a physician entrepreneur and as part of being a physician entrepreneur, you decide that you want to bring in a retinal specialist. Well, now you've now incorporated into your practice some additional services that you didn't do previously. And so now you're now billing for retinal services that you didn't do previously. Uh, obviously, your CPT, your HCPCS, your DRGs for those services are going to increase. And so you've got to be able to uh, know that, and you've got to be able to understand that you are likely going to get some potential routine audit work out of that. And are you in a position where you're able to fully articulate the changes in that coding? It's the same thing where if you're a hospital that suddenly decides that you want to become a center of excellence or whatever you want to call it for things like joint replacement, brain ischemia, uh, or what have you, that you've got to understand that with that tectonic shift in the services that you're going to be rendering are also going to be things like audits. And if you have a staff that aren't already proficient in how to deal with those uh, services and those codes, you know, that's the time to, you know, bulletproof yourself, you know, create that um, that internal compliance program to be able to get that in the right place. Absolutely. One closing remark, Eric, you have really had some great information. Uh, it's uh, always wonderful to have you on the podcast. Two points I want to make in closing briefly uh, to round this out is if you haven't seen this Humana Provider Payment Integrity Post-Payment Review Policy, uh, uh, do a search on the internet, on the Google whatever search engine, because as CDI professionals, this is a must-read document. Why? Because, you know, I've always said, Eric, just because you got paid doesn't mean you get to keep the money. And it, it gives you indications of what they're looking for for payment integrity. So it's called Payment Integrity Post-Payment Review Policy. And I want to read just a couple of statements here. From payment integrity and disputes. Okay, so some of the things that they uh, mention that they use as, as uh, areas of focus are in looking for these types of improper payment or integrity of, for what they paid are, listen to this, the lack of sufficient documentation in the medical record to support the charge build. And this is from a CDI documentation standpoint. I'm not reading all of them. Lack of medical necessity to support services or days billed. Services billed are not covered for the member's benefit plan or any or Medicare policies such as NCDs and LCDs. And listen to this. Lack of objective clinical information in the medical record to support condition for which services are billed, i.e. medical necessity. So we have a tremendous role as CDI professionals in understanding it's not only about the diagnosis, it's about establishment of medical necessity through the telling of a good patient story. It's, uh, it's objective clinical information besides clinical indicators. Can the record stand the test of time? Uh, 
for that diagnosis based on the patient's story, not just the clinical indicators? And would an outside reviewer come to the same conclusion of need for hospital level of care? Because if we don't do that as part of our emphasis upon reviewing charts and working with physicians and case management and UI, to ensure we have a solid clinical picture. Uh, you know, Dr. John Zellum, who I'm working with, uh, has a, said so eloquently this statement in closing here. Without medical necessity and a clear picture of acuity and clinical acuity, severity of illness, told through a great, effective, well-told, well succinct patient story in the H&P, there's no need for CDI. CDI is irrelevant. And if you, the last thing is if you look uh, from a compliance perspective on table D4 and E4 of the 2019 hospital, excuse me, CMS 2019 supplemental data report, third contractors improper payment report, table D4 and E4, you must look at those because it gives the top 20 improper payments for DRGs in the hospital, uh, short-term acute care hospitals. And the number one diagnosis procedure or DRG was joint knee and hip procedures replacements. Why? 100% improper payment on the charts reviewed because there was no medical necessity. Number three was sepsis and 100% of the improper payments for the charts reviewed, uh, and they give you the number of charts reviewed, were based on coding. No, it wasn't coding. That chart was not supportive of sepsis, just like that example of the patient on the bed eating the cheeseburger. Number four was pneumonia. 80% was related to medical necessity and insufficient documentation. Our name of our profession is clinical documentation, integrity, glass, and improvement. So if you haven't seen this article, oh, by the way, I want to say this before I forget in closing, then Eric, give us your final remarks. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Top Gun Audit School. That's topgunauditschool.com. And Heidi Hillstrom and I have, and several other of my colleagues, including Dr. Zellum and Dr. Jake Martin, we have done over 21 webinars on CDI-related material. In fact, we did one last week with Heidi Hillstrom, Standards of the Documentation, EM Guidelines. It is the standard of documentation. Thursday, we did a webinar well attended on medical necessity, recognizing the rhino running at you. We covered what is insufficiency? What is medical necessity? We had some great case studies of charts actually denied where medical necessity or insufficient documentation was the reason for denial. Uh, and the CDI, sadly enough, reviewed these cases and gave it a thumbs up. So there's more to it than just diagnoses. And Eric, any closing remarks for CDI people? What would you say should be the take-home message? The take-home message is always going to be the same, and the take-home message is that the CDI people are really the last front in the fraud, waste, abuse, and compliance world, and that if they aren't taking a stand uh, on uh, what is considered correct coding, billing, and documentation, uh, they really are just complicit in the wheel of the fraud, waste, abuse, Absolutely. compliance continuum. That's really what it comes down to. The, the whole point of people being uh, trained and educated and experts in CDI is for correct coding. I mean, 
that is the C in CDI is is correct. So that's really what it comes down to. And oh, it's, excellent it's, it's point. It's really nothing more than that. Eric, thank you so much. Hey, folks, if you haven't checked out CoreCDI's website, it's core-cdi.com. And Advise Health, Eric, is what? AdviseHealth.com, is that your website? That's correct. Advise with a Z, A-D-V-I-Z-E, health.com. Uh, we have weekly blogs that I write regarding fraud waste yeah, abuse compliance issues. Excellent. Um, I do those every week. Uh, we put out a bunch of tips and, and things of that sort, and uh, we have a full suite of uh, support that we provide to the healthcare provider and payer community. Yeah, and a lot of other resources on the website are free. Sign up for the listserv. They, uh, I have a listserv. I send out email, monthly uh, tips. I have Wise on Wednesday, Experience Speaks podcast every other Wednesday. Go to Top Gun Auto School, a lot of free resources. Eric, thanks again for your time. Everyone be safe, and we look forward, Eric, to having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much. Take care, Glenn. Thank you for listening. Glenn Krauss can be found on LinkedIn. Make sure to subscribe to Wiser Wednesday Experience Speaks on Anchor.fm or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to also visit core-cdi.com for CDI and Revenue Cycle Consulting Services and TopGunAuditSchool.com, a coaching service for hospital and clinicians. This podcast was produced by MedicalCodingGeek.com. Medicalcordinggeek.com